You know, it's easier to say God thinks of us because we can think of us collectively. Surely there's something in us collectively that, you know, as a church that would make God want to think of us. But, you know, it goes deeper than that. God thinks of you. He knows your name. And even in the last minutes of his life, Jesus is so concerned about one soul that as soon as he hears that call, the contract call, we're not, we're, not, we're not mocking anymore. We're not playing games anymore. We're not making excuses anymore. We're not justifying our past actions anymore. It's raw. My time's up. I need help. And in a moment, God answers that contrite call. The scriptures record for us seven things that Jesus said when he was nailed to the cross. In this sermon series, The Dying Words of Jesus, Pastor Joplin Emerson examines all seven saints. Listen in to see the heart of Christ unveiled like you've never seen before by the very words he spoke from the cross. Here is part two, the thief on the cross. I want to preach to you this morning specifically about one of the thieves on the cross. The Bible tells us that there were two that Jesus was hung between. In a world that is governed by God, there are no accidents. Much less on this day, the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the day of all days, in connection with this event, His crucifixion, the event of all events, this was no accident that Jesus was hanging between two thieves. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it was prophesied that he would be numbered with the transgressors. God had decided beforehand that his son would die between two lawbreakers. What an ironic thought that the giver of the law, the creator of the law, the one who kept the law, the one who was sinless in all points, would ultimately die with lawbreakers as a lawbreaker. Now why would God do this? I would say one of the reasons is to demonstrate the unfathomable depth that God will go to to reach you and I. In Philippians chapter 2, we are told that uh, we should take on this mind of Christ. It's a mind of humility. It's a mind of submission. And the Apostle Paul builds up this great big argument that though he was from all time, the be- he, he was there in the beginning, he is the Son of God with all creative power, he was the Word made flesh, the Apostle Paul says he didn't even count that as anything really to be considered. But he humbled himself. Not only did he humble himself to become a man, but he humbled himself to die. Not only did he humble himself to the point of death, but he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross or a criminal's death. This violent, painful, public criminal's death. Why would he do this? To demonstrate the depth that he would go to to save us. I sense in my spirit, I might be wrong, but I believe in my spirit what I'm about to tell you, so I'm going to say it, 
There are people under the sound of my voice in this room that you feel like you have done it too wrong, you have screwed it up, it's been bad enough, whatever you did, the event you did was so terrible, or the length of time, or you knew better, and you, whatever it may be, there are people under the sound of my voice that you feel like, sincerely, what you've done does not deserve to be forgiven. That you have gone so far, you have done so wrong, you're so ashamed that God's love does not reach to you. I pray that the Holy Spirit this morning will illuminate to you the truth that Jesus came to die between two thieves, to hang between lawbreakers to show us just how far He would go to save us. And you have not gone too far for God to redeem you this morning, for God to heal you this morning, for God to forgive you this morning, for God to make right in your life what you have made wrong, you have not gone too far. He hung there in that position between two lawbreakers to show us the position He had to occupy in our stead. Now, one of the things that's interesting about our text, several of the Gospels record this event. We're actually going to look at it from Matthew's as well in a minute. But I recorded, I wanted to read this text because it shows us this odd truth. Two men, one to the left, one to the right, both had witnessed the exact same thing heard the exact same words, had the exact same identical experience. One receives him and another rejects him. Under the exact same circumstances, one man's heart is melted while the other man's heart is hardened. Why? What can we learn? Concerning the thief who turned his life over in the last minutes of his life and declared his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's one thing that we learn. That God can save men by grace alone without the help of any other human involvement. This man's hanging on the cross and there's nobody there to lead him. And Jesus is nearly dead. It's not as if Jesus can have this long conversation like he did with the woman at the well. We can really pry into the man's life and speak with him and bring him to this place of knowledge. Nobody else is there to lead him. Consider that from the eyes of the thief, he's hanging there, and even those who did believe in him have left. They're no longer there. They've abandoned him. And there he is, nearly beaten to death, crucified, suffering. And this thief on the cross looks over at this dying, bleeding, abandoned, suffering man and takes him to be his God. That is an unbelievably powerful thought. And there is nothing that can make sense of it except for the spiritual illumination of the Holy Spirit that 
God did a miracle in the heart of that man and revealed truths to him in this incredibly short time where he was able to take this crucified man to be his God. This morning, I want us to look at what I will call seven lessons that we can learn from this thief. Seven lessons from Christ's conversation with the thief on the cross. Number one, the first lesson that I think the scriptures teach us is that the thief is our representative. He is all of us. I really did think, because they were a lot harsher on punishment here than they were, than, than they are in our days. I really took some time trying to consider if possibly this thief's crimes were far less than the four years I spent as a criminal. Thought about that. My honest guess is that what I am guilty of is far superior, far worse than what this thief was guilty of. And at the end of the day, I came to the conclusion that it does not matter. The reality is the thief is all of our, he represents all of us. You should have been on the cross. I should have been on the cross. We were, as the thief said, justly condemned for our evil deeds. I'm reminded of the passage that tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, lest we think that he was just an upstanding thief, let's look at Matthew's account of this in Matthew 27, verses 41 through 44. Did I give you guys that scripture reference? <laughs> Somebody's paying attention over here. Matthew 27, verses 41 through 44. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and the elders, mocked him, saying, Save others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Look at verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Something changes in this man, and we're going to look at it together in a little bit. But don't, don't, don't think that he started out with kind of that, you know, you got the one nice thief that just was not really saying anything, and he finally spoke up. There was a moment, and there was a time leading up to this, when he was just like everybody else, mocking and reviling Christ with everyone else. On the brink of eternity... And he is still reviling the Savior. Something absolutely changes in this man, and he cries out, Lord, remember me. You know, we have to take the place of lost sinners before we'll ever truly see our need for a Savior. Number two. To expand upon that last thought, we learn that we must be abased before we can be exalted. Man must be brought low before he can be brought high. 
We have to see our helplessness. To simply see that I'm a lost sinner, it really isn't enough. I'm worse than just a lost sinner. On, on one hand, I am a lost sinner. But I'm actually worse than that. Because to a great degree, I am lost by choice. I have rejected God by choice. Romans 1 teaches us that the entire world is without excuse. Our own hearts bear witness that the things that we do are wrong. They are selfish. All of nature testifies to this God, and we have rejected Him. We're not just lost, as in we have no ownership in the deal, but we have turned against God. We have gone our own way. And in order for us to be lifted up, we have to come to, to this place where we see ourselves for who we really are. You know, what's fascinating is the ability for us to hold on through the, through, through the end of life to our stinking pride and never really come to see how helpless we are. What else is fascinating is how quickly we can find the help we need when we truly come to see how helpless we are. Because it's in that state we finally get real about asking for help. It's in that state where we recognize we are totally helpless. I can't save myself. I can't bring myself down off this cross. I am guilty. I, the punishment is just. Hell is just. I deserve it. I'm helpless. It's not until we really get to that place where we will truly cry out to God, look to God, depend upon Him and Him only to rescue us out of our mess. It's amazing how important it is to keep that humble mindset even after faith. You know, a lot of times we don't get the help we need from God because we don't want to acknowledge that we put ourselves in the place we are. We messed it up. And so we're still blaming wherever we're at. We're blaming wherever we're at, this place of we're not where we know God wants us to be and we seem stuck, but rather than crying out to God that I put myself here and I'm just helpless and I need help, we want to blame it on everyone else. You know, it's your fault and it's this fault and it's because this happened to me, it's because this experience took place and it's because this thing and that thing and we're really holding on to, I'm not where I am because of me. I don't have distance between me and God because of me. No, it's your fault. It's their fault. It's amazing how this prideful heart of ours will make excuses. And if there's something, if that is you this morning, I plead with you to come down off of your high horse and get down at the foot of the cross with the rest of us and just acknowledge we all need help. We all need help. And there's only one who can provide the type of help, the extent of help, the power of help that you need, and that's Jesus Christ. And what we find is that when God brings us to that place where we are low, we've been abased, it is then and then only that He is willing in a moment to reach down and lift us up. Number three, notice that true repentance brings a realization of who God is and who I am. True repentance 
brings a realization of who God is and who I am. It's not just deciding I'm not going to be a bad person anymore. True repentance isn't just deciding, you know, the way I've lived hasn't really worked out the way I want it to, so I'm going to try another lifestyle. That's not true repentance. In order for true repentance to occur, you've got to get to a place where you have a right understanding of who God is and a right understanding of who you are. And we see that this thief on the cross, he comes to this acknowledgement, he comes to see He's the king. He said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, you know, kingdom, that kings have kingdoms. He recognized him for who he was. The king of heaven. The one who had the the right to either allow entrance or say no to paradise. He recognized who God was and he recognized who he was because he ends up yelling back at the other thief and says, you ought to just keep your mouth shut. You and I deserve what's coming to us. You see, true repentance, it's not just deciding, you know what, I think I need to start going to church. Life hasn't worked like I want it to, and it's time to become a church man. The only thing that could possibly happen in that situation is that you actually go to church, you hear the Word of God preached, you realize just how foolish your mindset was, and you repent of that, and you get right with God. In that scenario, going to church would be a good idea. But listen, real repentance isn't about just deciding you're going to become a church person. Now, you've got to have a realization, this understanding of who God is and who you are. Number four, notice that salvation requires spiritual illumination. I spoke about this in my intro. The progress this man has found in just a few short hours. Look at these things that had been illuminated to him in just a short amount of time. A belief in a future life and retribution. He understood that heaven was real and hell was real. His sinful condition concerning the future. He knew it. He's in trouble. He didn't even really plead his case. He didn't say, Lord, if you got just a couple minutes here before you breathe your last, can I tell you about some good things I've done to consider? No, it's just, I don't have nothing to offer. But Lord, would you remember me? He understood that the Savior was sinless. He said in verse 41, but this man has done no wrong. He understood his place as Lord. And you know what else I find fascinating is that he saw that not only was the man God, not only was Jesus God, but that he was a Savior. Now that's fascinating. You need to know this morning, God is a Savior. The enemy wants us to see God as the exact opposite. He wants us to see God as this God that's just waiting to come down and destroy you for everything you've done wrong. You need to understand that punishment, hell, it is the last resort for God. It's the last thing that He wants you to do. 
God's first instinct is patience and grace. It's not punishment. He is a Savior by nature. He is the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. It's one thing to recognize that He's God. And I'm going to tell you, I remember in my life when I came to, 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 to see, when I had true spiritual illumination, that God is real. It's not some theory. It's not just something people believe to try to make them live a right or wrong way. No, God is real. This stuff is real. The Bible is true. And I had this this overwhelming realization that I had been wrong all of my life and that God was real, that He was all-powerful, that there was a Creator. And the first thing that I experienced immediately following was fear. Because I recognized in that moment that because God was real, I was in trouble. That's a bad thing for who I was and where I was at that time, or so I thought. Because God was real, and I was a wicked sinner. And I'll never forget this question that just popped in my mind. I believe it was the Holy Spirit having this conversation with me for the first time in my life. I'll never forget this question. So I think to myself, man, God is real. Lord, why would you reveal yourself to me? Why wouldn't you just let me go on and be a wicked man and die in my sins and split hell wide open like I deserve? Why would you not do that, God? And I felt the answer of the Holy Spirit. Because God loves you. And when I realized that God could love a wicked man like me, I went from being afraid to being so overwhelmed, I just sat there and wept. I cried like a baby. You know what I was realizing? It's like the Holy Spirit had illuminated to me the same thing He had to this thief on the cross. Not only is He God, but He is a Savior. He is the answer to the dilemma I'm in. He's the only answer to the dilemma I'm in. And He loves me, and He has the power to make things right. He, this thief comes to this conclusion hanging there on the cross. He believed him to be the king. And he had this consciousness that whatever was happening here at the cross, it wasn't the end. That's powerful. He sees Christ about to die, and what does he say? When you come to your kingdom. Like he had this consciousness, no, this is just getting started. Everybody's got it wrong. What could explain this transformation in the heart of this man except for that of the spiritual illumination? Number five this morning. We learn that Christ answers the true call of the contrite heart immediately. Christ answers the true call of the contrite heart immediately. Immediately, Christ responds, and we're going to look at the words that He responds with in just a minute. We're going to close with that. But I want you to see that immediately Christ responds. Not, yeah, you've come too late. His response is, thief, you you deserve to be punished. Thief had already pronounced that judgment on himself. Christ says nothing to even mention it. Jesus said elsewhere, He who comes to me, I will never cast out. 
I think is fascinating in the absolute last moments. We're talking minutes of his life here. Jesus is still dealing with one man. Man, it would do us so well, brothers and sisters, to see how Jesus really works. It's typically one person at a time. You look at the major stories that we know about in Scripture that are most moving to us, it's when Christ did something one-on-one with somebody. It's rarely the masses. It's the woman at the well. Right? It's raising Jairus' daughter. It's giving sight to blind Bartimaeus. It's hanging here with one thief on the cross. We have been deceived, swindled, bamboozled. That's a fun word. I haven't used that one. I work bamboozled into a sermon. Into believing, especially in this day of social media, that somehow real influence and real power and real change happens when you can get off an audience of millions. Brothers and sisters, our Savior, who's the one that said, follow me, he was much more concerned about meaningful one-on-one conversations than he was about speaking to the multitudes. In fact, the few times that there were multitudes of people following him, Jesus typically pointed out the hypocrisy in the group rather than talking about how great it was. He reminded his disciples, you know, really they're just following for the bread. You take away the bread, they'll be gone. He said, you want me to prove it? You go look at John chapter 6. You look at how Jesus dealt with the multitudes. He said, you want me to prove it? Let me stand up and preach to them the hard thing. And he does, and they all start to leave. And he looks at the disciples, the few that are there, and says, are you going to go with them? Jesus is spending time, even in the last minutes of his life, dealing with one. It was mentioned this morning in our time of worship, this overwhelming truth that God thinks of you. You know, it's easier to say God thinks of us because we can think of us collectively. Surely there's something in us collectively that, you know, as a church that would make God want to think of us. But, you know, it goes deeper than that. God thinks of you. He knows your name. And even in the last minutes of his life, Jesus is so concerned about one soul that as soon as he hears that call, the contract call, we're not, we're, not, we're not mocking anymore. We're not playing games anymore. We're not making excuses anymore. We're not justifying our past actions anymore. It's raw. My time's up. Lord, I know that I am a sinner. And I've openly said that by rebuking the man and claiming that we deserve this. I need help. And in a moment... God answers that contrite call. You know, this is important this morning if you are a sinner that needs saved. If you're here and you know it, you're not right with God, you've got no confidence that you're going to heaven, you need to know there's not this great big list of things you need to do. There's not an eight-step process you need to go through. There's not a bunch of courses you need to sit through and then get 
you know, baptized a certain way and pray this prayer the exact right way. You need to know something. This morning, there's only one thing that you need to do, and that is the moment that your heart is compelled, you need to make a contrite call to God. That contrite means humble. It means, it means this sense of brokenness, this sense of just open honesty, that contrite call to God. God, I need you. Would you save me? And this is the awesome thing about God is that He answers then. Right then. Incredible. And you know who needs to be reminded of that? Because this isn't just true for the sinner. This is true for the saint. Come on, brothers and sisters. How many times have we got it wrong? There's people under the sound of my voice right now. You're still trying to pay for what you've done wrong. You're trying to make it right. You think if you can make you deserve to be miserable. It's your fault. Stop it. Stop it. There's supposed to be no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We've got to get back to that place of just coming to Him with a contrite heart. And listen, when I tell you stop it, and I say it forcefully forcefully like that, I'm talking to myself. I know what it's like to know I just haven't had things right for a while. I'm not really, I haven't been faithful in some things I need to be faithful in. I've got some sin that needs to be dealt with. And I don't really want to go talk to God about it. Because there's this feeling that once we really deal with this, it's going to feel even worse. And so it's just kind of easier to not talk about it. Let's just go on. Let's just serve. You know what happens? You get colder and you get colder and you get colder. It becomes harder and harder to go and face God. But this point applies to you and I, brothers and sisters. Jesus answers the call of the contrite heart immediately. 20 years, never one time have I finally turned around and went back and faced God and said, God, I'm just sorry. I don't know why it took so long. I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I've been running. I don't know why I've been the way I've been. Never one time in all the years has God come down on me and put his thumb and tried to make me feel small. But immediately God answers the call of the contrite heart and peace comes like a river. And I'm thinking, God, why did I take so long? To come and make things right with you. You understand what Jesus did on the cross. It wasn't just so you could be saved. It wasn't just so you could go from being a sinner to a Christian. But it was so that in the moments, even as Christians, when we fail, there is a blood, that a sacrifice that has been paid that is sufficient for all of our sins. And so when we come to God, we come to God not because we've got it all right all the time, not because we've had such a great week, or when we feel like we can't come to God. We've got it wrong if we think we can't come to God because I've had a bad week. We can come boldly to the throne of grace because of the finished work that Jesus did on Calvary's cross. And you need to know this morning that He answers the call of the contrite heart immediately. Number six this morning. We learn from our text this very simple truth. Heaven is real. Heaven is real. No, it's not some you know, theory to try to make you live good so that hopefully you get a benefit after you die. Heaven is real. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a better place. 
We need to see it again, brothers and sisters, that paradise, heaven, it's a better place. We are so spoiled as Americans that we have actually lost a hunger for heaven. We don't really want to go. We, we want to prolong that as long as possible. I'm going to show you a couple passages in a minute. That wasn't the attitude of the, of the New Testament church. It just wasn't. The attitude was, we want to go now. We want to go today. We understand it's better for the lost and dying world and those that need help that we're here because we're the body of Christ and He works through us and so we need to be here winning the lost. But make no mistake about it, our joy, our home, what we long for, what we hunger for, it's not this place, it's heaven. And we've lost sight of that in the American church. we become so spoiled and we've, we, we, we have just about everything that we want and life is is for the most part, comparatively speaking, even through a pandemic, even through the worst year of our lives in 2020, we still got food to eat. Most of us are still advancing our own little earthly plan and our games and you know what we want to do, and it really hasn't impacted us that much. We talk about it a lot, but really, we're still, for the most part, blessed beyond blessed. And I go beyond that and say we've lost the... We went past being blessed to the point of being spoiled. We need to recapture this love and this hunger for heaven. Jesus calls it paradise. Heaven is real, brothers and sisters. When you get focused on that, it makes it a lot easier to go through a world where you're treated as a pilgrim, where things don't go your way. I would argue that to a point, when we are so focused on heaven like we should be, it actually makes the difficulties of earth more beneficial to us. It reminds us that this is not my home. Rather than getting all mad about it and frustrated because my little kingdom ain't working like I want it to, and my earthly life isn't working like it should, and I've got pain, and I've got sorrow, and I've got this, and I've got that, and I don't have this, and I don't have that, rather than focusing on those things when they happen and being frustrated and then trying to fix it all, the Christian whose mind and heart is focused on heaven and sees heaven as paradise only thinks, ha, huh, good thing this isn't my home. Whew. Thank God life's but a breath. Like all of this, all of life is just like one breath compared to the eternity that awaits me. And the difference between this place and that place, this place is like I'm just an unwanted person. I'm a pilgrim in a foreign land. They try, I'm like an alien here. And yet, there is my home. Complete change of perspective. You need to know this morning, heaven is real. The final thing I want you to see about heaven I would say it's even what really makes it paradise is that Jesus longs for you to be with Him. This statement, He didn't just say, truly I say to you, today you'll be in paradise. He said, you'll be with me in paradise. That's what makes heaven great. 
Yes, it's a place where there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no wrong, there's no sin, there's no darkness. But what makes it the best is that we are with Jesus. And to think that that's what Jesus wants. He longs for us to be with Him. I pray that the Holy Spirit will help you have the same visual that He gave me as Jesus is there dying and He's granting this man passage into heaven with Him. That's what Jesus was dying for. Out of everything that happens here at the cross, from a human perspective, trying to put yourself in the shoes of Jesus, this is the moment where it's like, yeah, this is what this was all about. This is not for nothing. Even before I breathe my last, this is what this is for. And he's dying so that he can save the lost and so that we can be with him. You need to know that's what we are. That's where we are. That's where the Christian goes when he dies. Stephen said it right before he was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul mentions it twice in two of his letters. First in Philippians 1.23, here's what he said. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul's explaining there when he says, really, I, I mean, I like being with y'all. But my desire is not to be here. I would rather depart and be with Jesus. You may remember when I started this sermon series, I, I, mentioned, um, I, I mentioned before even getting to the text that we've got to get to back to this place of seeing God for who God is and falling in love with God. When you take away Christ and the love of Him, when you take that away as the centerpiece of Christianity, all that remains is us trying to find ways to make Christianity about you, to make the service as entertaining as possible, to make your experience as, um, you know, as helpful as possible, in hopes that we can retain people by building a system that caters to them. And it's, the church has been spinning its wheels uh, 100 miles an hour for the last 20 years trying to develop this and perfect it. Because somewhere along the line, we forgot how to simply get people to fall in love with Jesus. You really fall in love with Jesus? You really see Him for who He is? The way that Paul did? Paul was blessed to have an actual first-person experience with Jesus. You remember his experience? He was knocked off of his horse, right? And Jesus appeared to him. And then we also know that Paul had an experience where he was called up into heaven. The third heavens is what he calls it. It's a reference to the spiritual heaven. He said, whether I was in the body or whether I was in the spirit, I'm not real sure. I just know I was there. I know what I saw. Didn't even talk about it, I think, for 14 years. It was such a powerful experience. See, Paul had had a real taste of knowing Jesus face to face. Paul had had a real taste of heaven. 
And when he had that, all of a sudden, this. It was like, I don't want to be here anymore. You don't know what it was like there. You have no idea how peaceful it was. You don't know how beautiful it was. You don't know how blue, blue was. You don't know what it was like to see him face to face. It's better than anything here. And therefore, his heart longed to go there. He said, it's where I want to go. But I want you to notice, he says it in Philippians 1.23, that when we depart, we are with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, he said it this way, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We see that Jesus longs for us to be with Him, and that for the Christian, when the Christian leaves this earth, when the Christian leaves the body, when the Christian dies, physically, the body dies, the Christian is immediately in paradise with Christ. We are there with Him. The last thing I want to say this morning as I ask our worship team to get in place for a time of invitation is that the negative side of the reality that there is an eternal heaven is that there is also an eternal hell. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story that demonstrates that unbelievers are in a place of eternal torment. Those are the only two final destinations for all humans. Heaven or hell. And once that crossing has been made, it's final. There is no going from one to the other. You're either saved or you're not. You're either going to paradise or you're going to hell. You know, when we see things in this context, it really elevates Christianity to its rightful place. The message of the gospel isn't one of trying to make wealthy people wealthier. It's not one of trying to make comfortable people more comfortable. It's not a message about trying to make better people even better. It's a message that at the end, there's only two places, heaven and hell, and every single one of us start out on the wrong path. Every one of us. We're all sinners. We're all doomed to the same destiny, and there is only one solution, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one answer. There is only one name given by men whereby we might be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. God wants us to know this morning when we look at the thief on the cross, there is nobody that he won't save. God wants us to know this morning that all of us are really that thief on the cross. God wants us to know this morning there is absolutely no depth that He would not go to to save you.